As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Mohammed Al Aaron of Bloomberg <clears throat> Opinion and Queens College, Cambridge, amongst many other things as well. Mohammed, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being with us. Central bank triple header next week. What are you focused on out of those three decisions? So all three are going to hike by 25 basis points, but that's where the commonality will end. I think the Fed will come across as dovish. The Bank of England will still be quite hawkish, and the ECB will be in the middle in terms of their forward policy guidance. Fed one and done or more to come is a question we keep leaning on. Where are you on that now? So the framing matters. If I go to your framing, which is to adopt the excessive data dependency, which is where the Fed is today, and if I stick to a 2% inflation target, then they will keep open the possibility of a September hike. If I go to a different framing, which is a much longer-term framing that looks at how the, how the U.S. economy functions, then it should be one and done. The trouble is that we have all been pushed into this very short-term framing where it's almost absurd that we talk about data dependency with policies that act with a long and variable lag. But that's where we are. We're long and variable lag, but what we really are is trying to measure some form of algebraic plugins that lead us to a phrase restrictive or as Dominic Constant Mazuo says, super restrictive. Are we super restrictive right now? We are restrictive. We're not super restrictive, but we are restrictive. But, Tom, it brings you back over and over again to a question that hardly anybody wants to talk about for understandable reasons, which is what is the right inflation target for the world we're living in today, for a world that I believe is a world of deficient aggregate supply, not a world of deficient aggregate demand where we had been. So that's where it comes down to ultimately. Do you want to talk about that issue or do you want to push it back as long as you can? And I think central bankers, for understandable reason, because they've been missing that target for so long, don't want to talk about this now. Does that mean in our analysis we can't aggregate and that each society, each nation has to disaggregate into the haves and the have-nots? So there are two aspects here. First, it doesn't make sense for so many countries to follow the same inflation target. It's as if I declare to everybody in this building, you should have the same weight target. We are different. These Why are you looking at me? <laughs> the, these countries differ fundamentally in the structure. You see the Egyptian humor there? What's Mohammed started that? now? Just, Seriously, know. Mohammed, carry on if you can. I thought beige was slimming. <laughs> but the second issue, 
You and John, there's something about your beige suit that John wants to pick on, but I'm not going. I'm not going there. Mohammed, I haven't going said there. anything about Can the beige Charles suit all morning. I haven't said anything. I know that's royalty. That's, Thank you. And it's the Am summer. I pulling it off? And you said earlier we deep into the summer. Some of us aren't deep Did into the summer. Did you see he made with the rent increases in London? His Royal Highness has had a thirty-four million dollar pop in his real estate properties. Did you see that? You, you should come to the UK to if you want to see what inflation what is really it? like. We're going to rip up. The, we're going to stop the show right now. This is very cool. You're doing all your fancy finance stuff. You go over and put a shingle out at a university, and the Queen, Her Majesty, showed up to greet you at Queen's College. What was that like? It was incredible. She, she, we were honored to have her as our patroness, and she was absolutely wonderful. You mentioned if you want to experience inflation, go to the UK. Describe it for people. What's it like right now in the UK? So food inflation at 17%. Labor, understandably, pushing back hard. So right now, the senior doctors are on strike. Um, we've had a tube strike called off. We've had train strikes. We've had nurses strikes. We've had teacher strikes. You, you feel the real wage resistance. And you feel the government and the Bank of England torn between, on the one hand, accommodating the price wage spiral, which they don't want to do. And on the other hand, understanding the distributional impact of what has been a huge inflation shock. So we can't just have a different inflation target for a different country every year. That's going to be chaos. But based on the structure of the UK economy right now and the way you see the United States, what would those inflation targets look like? If you could change them right now, if Mohammed had all the power and you, you wrote down those targets now, what would they be? So first of all, no one ever talks about changing an inflation target every year. That would be absurd. You might as well not have one. Sure. But the question is, if you look forward for the next five to 10 years, where's the right inflation target? And I suspect that the right inflation target is much nearer to 3% than it is to 2%. Now, that may not sound like a big difference, but it actually is a big difference over time. In the States? And what about the UK? And in the UK as well. Europe is the only one where 2% still makes sense. And Japan, which is an interesting one that we don't talk about enough because mm -hmm. they have a major exit coming up which they are denying for now, the exit from yield curve control, there it's probably also 2%. So, so in Gentilini talked about this, the former Italian prime minister in Europe as well. I'm going to keep Europe away from it right now because I think our audience really wants to understand your debate on R-Start. John Williams reframes to a lower R-Start. Ian Lingen of BMO Capital Markets agrees with that. Others agree with that, that we're going to step it as. I'm hearing from you you brilliantly called higher interest rates to come. Do you see an R-star that sets above where President Williams is, or can it even be higher? Rogoff suggesting even out to a higher new set for R-star. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a fascinating debate if you're an economist. You mentioned Ken Rogoff, I'd mentioned Larry Summers, I'd mentioned Olivier Blanchard. Yeah. I mean, a very active debate among people who basically come from the same camp. And they're having this debate. I, I'm more on the R star is higher than it has been in the past. So more on the Ken Rogoff, Larry Summers end of the debate. I mean, I, I look at it as you spend too much time out in California and you may actually understand other factors, as Professor Blanchard talks about. This is not some neat economic surveillance babble, folks. There's a lot of other factors here. And one of them is a the technological impulse over five 10 years. Do we completely underestimate technology as how it overlays on our financial system? So here we could have a five-hour discussion. We're doing that. You're here until okay. 11 a.m., okay? 
think of technology <clears throat> that we're going through, the innovation is doing this, the following. If you think of whatever distribution you thought of future growth and future productivity, some of these technological innovations in science, in AI, move the distribution to the right, that's good, but fatten the tails enormously. And it is how do you manage those fatter tails that is coming in in this discussion. I wanted to pick up on something you said earlier in the conversation, that there's a big difference between 2 and 3%. There's a lot of people listening thinking, what are you talking about? There's not much difference between 2 and 3% at all. Why is the difference so large? Compounding makes a huge difference over time. And it's, it's what you target to. My big worry, and you know this, is that if the Fed focuses on 2% in a relatively rapid time frame, we will end up in a recession. And I keep on repeating, you've heard me say this for the last year, there's no reason for the US economy to fall into recession. The endogenous elements of this economy are strong enough <clears throat> to power through this period. So the big risk is that mm. we follow the wrong inflation target and end up tipping this economy into recession. And it matters because you have the vulnerable segments of the population that have already seen their purchasing power eroded. Now you're gonna add income and security to that. And that's not right. a good thing. You know, it's great here. I thought Elarian showed up just to see us. I am, you know. What's he here for if it's not to see us? New Jersey. He's here for the sold out Jets, you know, pre-training summer camp. Is that a thing? I had no idea. He gets idea to that pick up thing. his Rogers swag. Look at the summer hat, John, that he's going to pick up here. The I bucket mean, hat. You know, the bucket. It, that's more than a bucket hat. That's like a Wimbledon yeah, hat. Yeah, that is more than a bucket it, hat. It's, it's not, like, what are they called? That's like fancy. I couldn't afford that. It's fancy, you know. It's got so, so tell me, Tom. Do you buy into this is the season the Jets make it to the playoffs, deep into the playoffs? I, I, I say they make it in deep to the playoffs because we underestimated Namath when he showed up. And, I, you know, Aaron, Aaron Rodgers getting his second you know, life here and all that. I'm actually pretty constructive on it. You're a Jets fan you know? this year. Is that on the record? No, I don't want to go that far. I'm a Tots okay. fan. I mean, it's enough pain. Different sport. But, well, do, do you have matter. a Jets bow tie? No, I do not have it. So don't you dare. <laughs> don't you dare. I, I got an Atlanta Braves bow tie I got to wear. I, now I know what I'm going to get you. Oh, you're killing Isn't me. The Go. Is the Arsenal CEO going to bring us any merch? I, I hope we'll, so. We'll find out in a moment. I, I, I was on with Neil Millington at the Lanesboro Hotel, and he's just, Tom, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Mohammed's going to stick with us. I'm pleased to say dive into this right now and for global wall street on a friday we're distracted by the silliness of barbie or this that and the other thing well guess what there are serious themes ahead and they are by definition complex joining us now out of columbia his work for years at brown brothers harriman is dr win thin head of currency strategy on japan when i need a clinic right now we'd go to robbie feldman at morgan stanley or you at brown brothers harriman about what they have wrought in Japan. Was it a cultural decision in Japan to rip up the textbooks you studied at Columbia? Was it a cultural decision to impute a inflation into the system? Well, hi, hi Tom and Jonathan. Uh, thanks again for having me. Um, I don't know if it was culture as, as more just of, of, of pure pragmatism. I uh, remember Japan has been fighting deflation for, for decades. And I think they're really quite gun-shy about, about removing accommodation. I think markets kind of got ahead of themselves about uh, either a tweak in yield curve control or an eventual liftoff. It's, it's clear from the Bank of Japan comments and from policymakers in Japan that they're very, very concerned. The numbers are starting to turn over right now, not, not only domestically, but obviously you know, globally. And so they are really, really reluctant. And so I think that's the signal that's, that's coming. Right. Of course, look, they can surprise us next week. They love to surprise us. But this is not a time for surprises to me. I mean, I think there's so much going on. Tom, to your point, this is a really crucial 
quarter or, right. or maybe half a year for, for global markets right now. On an algebraic process, there has to be constraints on whatever the variable is, whatever the process is, whatever the derivative is within the function. To me, the constraint is they want to own the bonds, but they can't become the bond market. Has the Japanese government become the bond market? The ownership of the bonds is by the government and with the government where the algebra doesn't work anymore. Tom, I have to be honest. Uh, I get anytime like, a young economist or young analyst asks me about what's going on in Japan, I really sort of start get a headache because it's hard to explain. Yes, the, the 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 Bank of Japan owns about half of JGBs in the market, and it's just it's just something that's hard to explain, right? I mean, it's, we don't see that anywhere else. Um, and you know, but the, I think the big difference is that Japan is a nation of savers; they're not dependent on foreign savings. So it's sort of this almost like a little domestic little bubble of an experiment that that so far is working. But again, I think they're very, very worried about how to get out of this. They've been stuck in this, this mode of, yeah, of this, buying and, and right. easing for so long that it, it, I think it's very, they're very, very scared about it. John, this is precisely the point. They want to do an action, which is to get out of it, and they have this massive constraint that they own the bond market. Oh, they dominate it. Yeah. Hardly anyone else does. When the yeah. problem, though, I think that you could get is the kind of spillover effects from anything they do, say, to the European bond market, to treasuries. When How would that work? What would the dynamic be? Would it be Japanese investors coming back home again? How would you think that would work? Yeah, John, I think there's quite a few channels. But the main thing would be, obviously, if they abandon yield curve control, JGB yields would, would, would most likely shoot up. And you would have a spillover effect of, I think, pushing up uh, U.S. Treasury yields and, and German bond yields, etc. Um, you know, they've been... Again, the outliers, Japan Japan's the, the sole outlier. Every other central bank is hiked aggressively. Uh, and it's the, it's the third biggest economy uh, in the world. So it's, it's, to me, it's there. There's just a very potential negative spillover to bond markets. Now, um, in terms of currency markets, we would see the opposite. We would see uh, the dollar-yen most likely uh, knee-jerk go down uh, if there's any sort of uh, removal accommodation. Again, that would have spillover effects on the regional economies. Again, this is such a crucial time. Um, for global markets, especially Japan, that I, I really think that caution is, is sort of the watchword right now. I don't think they're going to surprise anyone. I don't think they're going to take any kind of drastic action. Um, that said, again, they love to surprise us. So we'll know more uh, a week from now. We're going to find out in a week. When I wanted to finish on Europe and the experience we had there, for many people, including myself, I had my doubts about the ability of the ECB to hike interest rates, to back away from QE, given developments over the last 10 years in places like Italy, Spain, Portugal, Greece. They've been somewhat successful taking away that stimulus and not seeing big accidents develop in the European bond market. Do you think Japan can take that as an example where you could find some success, you can get that handoff away from central banks owning everything and then handing it back off? Well, uh, two things. I think Japan is such an extreme example. But yes, I think there is some hope that they can manage this. But again, I think the best time to have done this when the when markets were doing okay, you know, in a sense, I think maybe the Bank of Japan was a little bit too late by, by waiting so long. The other thing I would say about Germany is that there are even some cracks there. You know, we, you've probably been covering how uh, noted Hawks not um, and uh, another one uh, just have been backing off about uh, a September hike. And that's the first time I've heard the Hawks uh, really, really sort of uh, back off from this really intense tightening cycle. And I think that's because countries, the peripheral countries like Italy, Portugal are starting to complain. They are seeing right. cracks form in the, in the Eurozone. I think that's something that's uh, help the euro sort of top out uh, in recent uh, days. Is the Bundesbank the Bundesbank we know in 
I mean, is the Bundesbank, the court, the inner core that Martin Feldstein would talk about for years, are they still entrenched in an inflation worry? Yes, absolutely. And then I just occurred to me that Mr. Nagel, the Bundesbank president, is the other hawk. Uh, slipped my mind there. He, he was also one of the ones to crack. So it's, it's interesting. Uh, if anything else, that the Bundesbank has gotten, I think, at least changed its worldview. They realize it's not just all about Germany. There are other countries that, that have to be sort of uh, within the calculus of the ECB. And I think when, when ECB first started, uh, they were still locked into that you know, 1980s, 1990s mentality. Uh, and I think they were seeing a subtle shift. We'll, 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 again, we'll know more t- next week. We have the Fed Wednesday, ECB Thursday, Bank of Japan Friday. To me, I think what's going to come out of this is that the U.S. dollar, the, the Fed remains king. E- uh, ECB, Bank of Japan will start to sort of blink, perhaps. And I think that we can get a little bit higher in the dollar uh, in the coming weeks. Interesting. Win Thin of Brand Brothers Harriman. Win, thank you, sir. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline, it's teamwork, and it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Speaking of pain, it has been a difficult week in Ukraine. One of the great voices there is with Adam Posen and Olivia Blanchard at the Peterson Institute. Elena Rybakova not only has an encyclopedic understanding of her Ukraine, but double barrels it with data science from the University of Virginia. And she follows on in our tradition here to keep Pharaoh happy. We're having University of Warwick July. We have to speak to anybody we can <laughs> who's got parchment from the University of Warwick. We drag Skidelsky in here on a day-by-day basis if we could get him. But Alina Rybakova with economics from Warwick is the kind of person we want to talk about. You've got to about. drop the second W. No, I'm not. I'm doing that just to aggravate you. I'm doing that. I'm just doing that. If you're nice Warwick. to me, I'll maybe you can do, do this. One. You can do this. Yeah. Alina joins us now. Alina Rybakova. <laughs> Alina, wonderful to have you with us. I want to start with this it's in the commodity an honor. market. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. It's an honor for us as well. In the commodity market, we're trying to figure out just how much Russian crude is still in this market. Can we start there? How much Russian oil is on this market now globally compared to where it was before this war? About the same. You know, I think uh, we had this uh, oil price cap, which had dual objective, which I'm I'm afraid I have to compare with having a cake and eating it too, a little bit. So we wanted to have the oil, Russian oil on the market, but at the same time, lower Russian revenues. Well, we achieved the first objective, Russian oil is on the market. On the lowering of the revenues, that is a bit more nuanced and complicated. Tell me why. Just give me the maths around that. Why is that so much more nuanced and complicated? 
Well, we're on Bloomberg. It's economic incentives. On Russian side, about $10 per barrel for a year means a difference of about $20 billion in revenues for the companies and for the budget as well. So it's a $20 billion incentive to circumvent the oil price cap. They're putting everything they got in it to be able to do so. If we're not doing the same on our side, of course, there are difficulties. So if we think about the cap, we still have provisions of the G7 shipping and insurance services to Russia. And the limitations in it are very, very small. You know, I can put an attestation saying I have seen the contract and I promise to you it is below the cap. Imagine if we were filing taxes the same way. I have seen my income and I promise you it's very low. Oh, that's what we do. Uh, Elena, bouncing off your work at Citigroup on Russia, you've really got an encyclopedic knowledge on this. What would be your to-do list for the allies and particularly for the White House to make this more strident, more forceful with Mr. Putin? Well, if we were wanted to be really ambitious, I would say we go for a RAND-style escrow account, where we say everything has to go through one account, and then it will still have challenges, but at least we'll remove these complications at the stations, who is shipping where, you know, transshipment. I think that will definitely be easier. Failing that, we have to tighten the attestation regime. We have to go more seriously. We mm -hmm. have to say you have to keep the paperwork. We do risk-based audits. And if we find that the company is still shipping Russian oil above the cap, we're not saying we stuck right. your hand and we prevent you for 90 days. We actually put a proper fine. I mean, Alina, I don't know the details here, but I'm going to assume you summered in Odessa as a child. What is your belief of the fragility of the Black Sea right now, with wheat, with oil, with the new battles there. How fragile is the Black Sea territory this weekend? It's absolute devastation. You know, in from Ukraine, more than 90% of all shipments, including grain that we're talking about this week, um, went through the from through the seas. So the four key ports account for 90% of uh, Ukrainian exports. Of course, there is no infrastructure to move elsewhere. Odessa is one of the absolutely key ports. Then the dam that was recently destroyed, you know, that flushed out a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of dirt from the ground, you know, a lot of uh, sort of sewage, and it all and mines actually all went into the Black Sea. So an absolutely devastated situation, and uh, it will take years for us to move forward. You know, one year of war, I think it's more than five years of demining. I look at the demining, and I guess that comes to the military, and I understand your mandate's a bit off the military here, but you do follow the funding of the weapons. We're distracted in America by cluster bombs and their horror. What are you focused on is the next step to provide Ukraine with offense? Well, I think the next step is for us to prevent Russia from getting our own equipment from Intel, Texas Instruments, also some of European companies, to assemble that into their military production and use it against Ukraine. So we recently put out a study where Ukrainian Defense Ministry disassembled more than 60 items, and it's kinjals, and it's all kinds of military equipment that we all hope never to become experts in, but we are. So, and they found that two-thirds of the components in this equipment comes from the U.S. headquartered companies. And what we also find that Russia continues to import. In fact, the levels of the imports are at the same as the way before the war. How does that happen? When we just heard Chairman Yellen talk, uh, well, the head of Treasury Yellen, talk about the uh, sort of the French shoring and uh, onshoring. But unfortunately, China uses U.S. equipment, U.S. parts, produces that and ships it to Russia. 
or we have countries on shipping, you know, saying maybe Turkey or UAE or others, buying it from the US and again shipping it to Russia. So unfortunately, on one hand, we're supporting Ukraine with everything that we've got. Unfortunately, on the other hand, Russia is getting our own equipment to use against Ukraine. Chair Yellen, Vice Chair Yellen, TK, I confused that for, for years. Never mind Treasury Secretary it. Janet Yellen, I, know, I did the Adam, same thing. Adam Posen's never done that in his life. Alina Ribicova. Adam there. Posen nails it every time. Of the Peterson Institute for International Economics. <laughs> Alina, thank you. Thank you for being with us. On inflation now, and this is the conversation of the day on price change in America. He invented it, the analysis of it, I should say, with Bob Farrell years ago at Merrill Lynch. David Rosenberg joins us from Toronto. He is with Rosenberg Research. Hey, David, you slice and dice this. I want you to speak to Jerome Powell right now. Is the deflationary vector, is it in force, and will we stay with disinflation into 2024? Well, I think the disinflation trend, um, Tom, will be the primary trend. We're going to have a bit of a bump, though, in the next month or two because uh, the CRB uh, has taken a, like an 8% jump uh, since the end of May for the reasons that uh, you folks were talking about. Uh, and the question is, you know, how the Fed's going to treat that uh, and whether it's going to be temporary or, per or permanent. This run-up we've had really across... Uh, food prices uh, in the commodity markets and also uh, what's happened with oil coming off the bottom. Mm -hmm. uh, if this was happening with a 45 to 5% unemployment rate and we had um, excess supply in the economy, not a problem. But at a time of full employment, um, this bounce we've had in commodity markets uh, and in the context of the wage settlements we're seeing, I think has to be on the Fed's mind. So uh, I would say that the primary trend uh, is going to be towards disinflation uh, into the next 12 months. But I would say that the next couple of months is going to challenge that view. Are we beyond the pandemic? Are we doing traditional economics now, whether you believe in ISLM dynamics or you believe in factor dynamics, whatever, you know, microeconomic foundations, whatever it is? Are we beyond pandemic analysis? Uh, I don't think so, Tom. I, I, I think that... Uh, we're still seeing a lot of the after effects. Uh, it's one of the reasons why, look, yesterday, nobody seemed to care too much that the conference board's leading economic indicator uh, declined for the 15 month in a row. Uh, it's already gone down enough and far enough from the peak of December 2021 that the recession should have started. Uh, the inverted yield curve has been more than a year. It's very deep. Uh, the dispersion across all yield curves would be telling you that the recession should be starting. Uh, and we have this debate as to whether or not there's even going to be a recession. And, and so what's happened is that, you know, this was the Energizer bunny. The gift that kept on giving uh, were those uh, stimulus checks uh, from the Biden budget buster in March of 2021. Uh, and uh, those excess savings, uh, which historically Americans would spend half and save half. <clears throat> But we live in a much more narcissistic uh, society today, right? right? I don't remember before this cycle, like you're asking me about, about is, is, is the COVID effect behind us, the worst of the COVID health issues behind us, but the COVID effects on the economy. I mean, we're developing new acronyms like YOLO, you know, you only live once. So all the stimulus got spent, mm -hmm. and that's what's basically clogged up um, the monetary channel from what the Fed yeah. has done to the real economy. And 
that might be ending right now. Uh, but it's one of the reasons why um, the people calling for a session like yours truly have been frustrated is because of the uh, lagged impact of all that fiscal stimulus, you know, which was right. a, a product of the pandemic. What's interesting about this, John, is, you know, you only live once. Rosenberg's going to see Barbie twice this weekend. Is, 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 <laughs> Supporting is, retail sales. I'd, what, what, I'd, I'd, I'd bet against that. <laughs> David, I want you to dive here into my book of the summer, Blanchard and the R-Star debate. Blanchard feels that over time we will return to some form of quiescent R-Stard. John mm. Williams has staked out the high ground saying we will return to R-Stard. Others go the other way. Are we going to be in a 2 percentage Fed range out five years, 10 years? Or does David Rosenberg have to set to a legitimate societal reflation? Well, and I think you're referring to 2% funds rate in nominal terms uh, as being that baseline. And Tom, what's very interesting is that, uh, you know, through all uh, the pandemic and all the distortions around the pandemic, uh, that the Fed never once has changed its uh, long-run estimate of where the nominal neutral funds rate is. It's been stuck at 2.5%. Uh, the work that's been done, normally our star refers to the real neutral rate, and let's assume that we get to that holy grail of of, uh, of you know 2% inflation. And then you have John Williams. By the way, our work has corroborated his work that uh, there's a risk that our star in real terms goes negative. Uh, in the years ahead, and uh, that's supported by what? Well, what has been the what did COVID not change, or the policies around COVID not change, is aging demographics, and aging demographics has been and remains a dead weight drag on the. Uh, John tells me every rate. day. Continue, Mr. Rosenberg. Yeah. And and uh, <laughs> the constraints of excessive debt uh, is another consideration. And then we look, we had something, look, this has been wonderful for the growth stocks in the tech sector. Uh, and it seems as though, you know, NVIDIA back in May with that, uh, you know, truly, you know, bombshell earnings report uh, almost felt like Pfizer Monday, you know, back in uh, November of 2020. Uh, I'm not going to say this is bigger than the Internet, but it's certainly bigger than 3D printing. And it's going to have monumental impacts on structural shifts to the labor market, labor saving technology. Uh, that, again, is going to be, a, I think, from a labor market perspective, a significant disinflationary force, just like the Internet was not on the same scale. But it doesn't have to be on the same scale to be a truly disinflationary force and an impact on our star down the road. David, I just want to squeeze in an extra question on that then. And this is really sort of like out there thinking down 10, 20 years. But how on earth are politicians going to deal with this, David, if we start to see that kind of job replacement from this kind of boom? Well, it's going to be a big problem because uh, with the aging demographics comes with that uh, higher dependency rates, and, and that puts added pressure on fiscal finances at a time when governments around the world have been so profligate on the spending side. So this is going to be a very big fiscal problem. Some people say the only way out of this is we have to inflate. We have to inflate a way out of this debt problem. Um, but the problem with inflation and the reason why Jay Powell uh, has been fighting inflation and with cover from the White House is that inflation is a tax on the poor and the elderly. So when people say, well, we have to solve the debt problem, you know, with inflation. Uh, no, because it creates other social problems. Uh, ultimately, we're going to have to have a revamping of the entire fiscal system, uh, means testing on entitlements. And the bottom line uh, is that uh, this dirty five-letter word called taxes uh, are going to have to go up. Uh, and that's why I think that, um, you know, when you're taking a look at why have bond yields not soared? Uh, I mean, even with what's happened with uh, foodstuffs and energy in the past few days, uh, the Fed about to pin the funds rate at five and a quarter to five and a half, the stock market booming. 
Why, why isn't the ten-year note have a five handle? Why are we at three eighty on the ten-year note with all this? So the bond market's telling you something. It comes back to Tom's initial question. The bond market is telling you something about that disinflationary future. Uh, so I think that in terms of how governments deal with it, uh, I think this era right now that we're seeing a fiscal. Uh, rectitude is going to have to switch towards fiscal tightening down the road because this is not sustainable. And I'm looking at this thinking: if you told everybody what was happening with the stock market, fiscal deficits, yeah, uh, you know, uh, everything, you know, everything that we're talking about right now, we have to ask the question: the biggest anomaly is not what the stock market's doing, guys. It, it's what the bond market is not doing. Interesting. What's that message? We'll keep asking that question, David. This was fun, deeply thoughtful. Thank you, sir, David <clears throat> Rosenberg. There of Rosenberg Research. Enjoy the movies this weekend. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources, from clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising healthcare costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline, it's teamwork, and it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. I can't believe we've got a Tottenham fan sitting opposite the Arsenal CEO. Vinay Venkatesham joins us now. Vinay, great to see you, sir. Big game tomorrow against Manchester United at MetLife Stadium. Before we get to all of that, let's just start with why here? I see a lot of Spanish clubs come to the United States now. A lot of Italian teams do their pre-season tour here. Why is this so important for Arsenal Football Club? Sure. Well, firstly, thank you for having me on the show today. Um, the US has become our number one international market. And we see that anecdotally. Every time we come to the US, we come every couple of years, we can see the games growing and we can see Arsenal's popularities growing. And we also see it in the numbers. So last season with NBC Sports, we had the record audience for Arsenal Manchester United. We see our social media following growing really fast. 20% of our retail business is in the US. And we played the MLS All-Star game in Washington, jam-packed full and jam-packed full of Arsenal fans, which was great to see. Great to see. Lots of money in it, I'm sure. You're also spending lots of cash as well. And I'm sure a lot of Arsenal fans want us to go straight there. How much have you spent this summer on football talent? Well, so I guess the story about this summer really starts with looking back at last season. So last season we had uh, what we considered to be a successful season. We took the title race right until the last weeks. Uh, in the end, we finished second rather than the first that we were fighting for. 
Um, but we have one of the youngest squads in the Premier League. So this season, they're going to be another year more experienced. And what we've done this summer is supplement that fantastic squad with three new signings, the three positions we wanted to strengthen, the three players we wanted. And we were delighted to get them right at the start of the window. So we have them here with us on tour in the US and it means they can assimilate in the squad. And it was a heavy, significant investment. And that investment really shows the ambition of our ownership group. You know, they have had a enormous success with their franchises in the US over recent years, winning the Super Bowl, uh, winning the Stanley Cup and then winning the NBA Championship. So they've really invested behind the team uh, and have really supported us this window. So we will be ready for the fight this season. Thank you for making l last season so interesting till the very end and congratulations on your purchases. But let me, let, let me put you in a tough spot if I may. Sure. There's two views as to what model sh should major sports run. One is the UK model where you don't have forced equalization, where you have relegation. One is the US model where you don't have relegation, you have forced equalization. Mm -hmm. If you were to create it, the premiership from, the, from, the, from scratch, would you keep the current model that allows a few teams to dominate all the time? Or would you go to more like a US model that allows for far more equalization? Um, I'd keep the model that we have at the moment and I think it's proven the Premier League is the world's biggest league in the world's biggest sport and I think one of the reasons the Premier League is so successful is the broadcast distribution in the Premier League is actually relatively equal so the top club in the Premier League gets roughly 1.8 times the, the bottom club in the Premier League so we try and keep the revenue distribution as equal as we can to make sure the league is as competitive as it can be and it goes in cycles sometimes you have a period where teams dominate and sometimes you have a cycle where it's where it's more competitive. I'm rooting for Sheffield United. Sheffield, Sheffield United, me and Joe Elliott, destined. So being a QPR supporter and just looking up to the Premiership, you'll understand how we feel about our inability to ever penetrate because of what happens above us. But let me ask a question. So you're seeing all this US support come, come to Arsenal, and I'm hearing there's a lot more interest in, in, in soccer, as they call it here. On yes, there. they do. Is this a pull factor or a push factor? Is this people being pulled by the fact that NBC is covering more games? Or is, is it the fans that are pushing people to, to talk more about UK soccer, including Tom and John? I think it's a little bit of both. I think NBC have done a fantastic job for the Premier League over a long period, uh, both in terms of how they promote the game and how they've also educated the audience around around all things football. Uh, and we see it in their viewers' numbers. I think NBC's viewership numbers last season were 20% higher than the season before. We've got our game tomorrow um, at MetLife. Um, it's going to be a sellout. It's going to be our biggest ever um, game from revenue perspective that we've ever played in the US. And I think it's going to be MetLife's biggest ever soccer game uh, that they've had in their stadium as well from a revenue perspective. So the demand is really, really, really there. Um, and it's growing really quickly. Got to talk to you about Saudi involvement in the game, increasing and increasing through this summer, particularly over the last couple of years with that purchase of Newcastle more recently. What does it feel like as a CEO of a football club to be competing with a country? Not a single person, but a nation. What does that feel like? Do you feel like you're doing that now, this summer? Well, this, the Premier League, one of the reasons the Premier League has been so successful is because it's so unbelievably uh, competitive. Um, and, you know, Newcastle are another team that are stepping forward in that competition. They had a very successful season last season. Uh, they're, in their, they're in the Champions League. So it's, a, it's always a dynamically changing market. 
Um, another big change that everybody's been talking about uh, this summer has been the number of players they've actually transferred to Saudi. So that's another interesting development in the game. It's new. It's a little bit too early to know um, how that's going to affect the Premier League, if at all. Uh, and we'll all be watching with interest. Long ago in my youth, I saw the Rochester Lancers and a wonderful guy named Charlie Schiano try to make this happen. And the fact is it was perceived by me and everybody else in America is minor league football. What is the symbolism of Messi going to MLS now? Does he take them from minor league football to something new and different? Well, the MLS has been on, um, as I understand it, a good growth trajectory over many years. Um, the league's expanded. There's been a number of expansion franchises. For us at Arsenal, we want um, football, or soccer as we may call it here, to grow in popularity. So we want there to be a vibrant, healthy domestic league in the MLS. Um, Messi is you know, a generational talent. So have him in MLS playing in Miami, I think will have a really, really positive effect. Um, at the same time, uh, the new Apple TV deal is going live as well. So we're really hopeful that that will help continue to grow uh, MLS. And we've seen in the few days we've been here how much coverage there has been um, around Messi and how many people have been talking to us about Messi. And that's what we want. Think, we, want we want that conversation to be Do you think on. Harry Kane could come to MLS? I'm sure that Vinay would like Harry Kane to get out of the Premier League, yeah, okay. to be honest with you. Just I won't ask him directly about that. My deep the Apple deal, Vinay, I've got 45 seconds, but I want to squeeze this in. The Apple deal's huge. For a football player to get a slice of the TV money directly like that, do you see more of that happening? Um, well, listen, I don't know the details of the Messi deal, so I just read what everybody else reads. But listen, I think Messi, all I can really say is I think Messi can have a, a really, really significant impact um, on the game. And I'm sure here in this country, and I'm sure it was a really competitive process to get him to play here because there's lots of people that would love Messi playing in their league. And I'm sure MLS had to work really hard and really creatively to get here. here. And they've been successful because he's here and he's driving yeah. a whole lot of interest. The Saudis were one of those, weren't they? Trying to drag him over. But no, this was great. Let's do this again. Good luck to tomorrow. September 24. What's that? So ask him. North September London Derby. We're trying to get tickets. September I was going to do that in a commercial break. Okay, okay, sorry. But you know, we'll do that in a little bit more. September 24. Every time it comes to the Emirates, we win. All right? You know. Oh, well, okay. Well, now, now you're talking. Now you're talking. But no, thank you. This was great. Thank you, buddy. And good luck for tomorrow. Thank you. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.